All right, good morning, everyone. Uh, so much love. I know it's going to be extra hard to reel us in because we want to hang out, and that is a fantastic thing. So I love seeing you all connecting, um, having conversation. Um, it is a good thing. I am so beyond bonkers excited to be with you all this morning. Um, so good to be together. F for us, it, for many of us anyways, it's been, say, for me, even with you all, two weeks since we've been together, which feels even longer. But I was trying to put together some things, and uh, the last time I taught was Christmas Eve. So that is but just a few days away from being like a month. And I can't remember the last time that was the case. So it feels really just goofy and odd, and I don't know. Uh, so it's so good to be together. So much love to you all. So much love, John and Marsha. Uh, it's so good to see you. Uh, wow. Um, so good together. Now, here's the thing. The last time we were together, our friend Ruth and uh, uh, wonderful, brilliant social worker, Ruth Jones, was uh, leading us and teaching, and she did something that um, it got under my skin in a good way and inspired me, but she had, in, in teaching, she had a little flag that she brought, and she said she would wave the flag to alert us when she was going to social work us. As a social worker, she said there'll be a time. So she thought she should have a flag. And that made me think maybe I should have something when I am going to Bible context you. <laughs> right? So I thought, what could that be? And I thought, I will bring my Turkey Israel hat that I wear on my trip. And whenever I'm going to Bible context us, we're going to do a deep dive, I'll put my hat on. But now it's just dawning on me. I didn't think about it. I'll wear it a lot, and then if I take it off, I did not think about the hat hair. <laughs> it just came to me. I don't have any hair. Oh, you guys. Okay, um, we're, we're on. So a couple of weeks ago, I read uh, Archaeology Magazine as you do. And one of the discoveries they found a couple weeks ago is that they just announced in the tiny town of Spello, Italy, about a hundred miles north of Rome, they discovered a temple from the fourth century CE that was, um, they were told, the people of Spello were told to build a temple by the emperor Constantine. He directed and said, build this temple so that we can worship his ancestors, the Flavian emperors. Why does this matter? Because Constantine, the emperor, in 312 CE, converted to Christianity. He gave his life to Christ, as we would say. And so what this does is this opens up, it gives us a, a, what I think is a good overview for the series we're in. When we're doing a series called The Undivided Self, 
what it means to live holistically in every role that we have in our lives and every place that we are and every way that we are, that we would live integrated, whole, as a follower of Jesus. And what this tells us is this Constantine had a rough go of it with this. Because in 312 CE, he gives his life to Christ. It isn't until 380 CE that Rome declares that Christianity is going to be the state religion, if you will. And so in the meantime, it's showing that change takes time. That this is not a flip a switch type of thing and then all of a sudden everything can just be right here right now. For some, that can be the case. That can be a case that they're able to drop things, to move away from things. But think of Constantine who um, to live an integrated whole life in Christ would be dramatically countercultural, but he wasn't just living in it. He was supposed to be leading the empire. Right? So think of the difficulty of him saying, we're no longer going to play with this pagan stuff of worshiping all these other emperors and these other things. And instead we're going to, or I'm going to just walk with Christ and give my life holy in this way. He struggled to live an integrated life that we find in these, oh, the, the lead archaeologist on this said, this really affirms the wobbly nature and the difficulty of walking with Jesus and walking away from that which takes us in another direction. Are you with me? So then, that's how we will kind of sink in. So if I uh, put my my hat on, I I first had my shofar, and I'm thinking, I'm not going to blow that every time, the ram's horn. I'm like, everyone will be like, that's it. This guy is out of here. So we're not doing that. Um, this struggle is real. And so we want to talk about this to follow Jesus um, because the idea is to walk in Jesus is not easy. It's hard. And this invites us into uh, away from a world that often says, make the self your idol. Make work your idol. Make some element of your life, compartmentalize it, in fact. And then what we do is we tend to elevate some of these compartments to become idols, and it's so difficult to live integrated. And the exodus out of those narrow spaces can be a difficult journey, and we need one another in this. So we're going to talk about this morning what it means to live the undivided self with friends. With friends. Um, So before we sink into the text, though, what I'm going to do is I want to pull back the curtain. Don't always do this. I want to pull back the curtain a little bit and say it isn't just um, what we are doing together, but how we do it. So I would hope within teaching, I'm usually doing a number of things, and there's a lot of it that we might be talking about this, and my hope is that you go down here and down here, and down here, and my favorite thing is to have conversations with you all where you go, when you said this, when you said this, it made me think of this, and all of a sudden this erupted in my heart, and this was happening, and I'm like, but I didn't say anything about that, and you were doing the work of excavating the soul, and so uh, I don't usually just say, here are the 15 things we're going to talk about, I say, we're going to talk about this, 
and we'll invite you in. But I do want to pull the curtain and show you something that we are doing specifically in the series, but more so as a community, what this means to live from that which is deepest within, uh, our Christ essence in all that we do, in every role that we hold, in every space that we inhabit. So that we would learn to see that everything Every place, every space, every person, every day within every role we hold, it's sacred and holy and baked with Christ. And then when we can begin to see, well, we can't unsee. And so um, it's too easy for us to ascribe to the thinking that there are the normal and mundane elements of life. Well, then there are the holy activities, you know, like church stuff. There are those who are called pastors, those who work vocationally in ministry, and then there are the regular or secular vocations and people. But this false dichotomy could be upheld and even emboldened if worship is largely or maybe even singularly set on a certain day, say Sunday, at a certain place like this. And we had the holy people lead us in singing and in teaching and us regular people take it in. It could be upheld if we think that way and that would be really unfortunate. Now, I love and am grateful for the role I have and the job I have, which I believe God has poured gifts and talents into me to do. And I am bonkers grateful for Sarah and for Jessica and the gifts and talents that have been given to them and the way they break themselves open and pour themselves out to help us as a community grow in our relationship. That is all true. But, here's where we pull back the curtain. I am also incredibly grateful for Andrew, who has uh, helped lead in teaching, who works for a parachurch ministry, yes, that goes into the public schools, wherein he taught for over a decade, and is reaching people, connecting with people in spaces to help people find their way back to God. So I'm grateful for him stepping in and teaching us the way he does. I'm grateful for Jake, who is a high school teacher for Grand Rapids Public Schools and also a dad and a husband, as is Andrew, a dad and a husband and sons. And they have these roles. And I'm grateful for Ruth, who is a social worker and a mom, and a wife, and a daughter, and has these different roles. And I'm grateful for John, who is a businessman, a husband, a father, a grandpa, among many things. And these people help lead us in teaching, in giving perspectives and wisdom from different elements and walks of life that we so need. And so by them helping lead us in this, it gives us a wider, broader, deeper view of life than if it's just me. And so I hope you experience that and feel that because we need that. And I am so grateful for all of you and for all of this because we need the wider wisdom and deeper 
impact of that. Are you with me? Okay. So then, I asked each of them to teach within this series. Jake was the one who was scheduled that didn't work for this particular series, but they have been teaching throughout and will continue to teach and lead us in ways that some of us are like, mm, I don't relate to that, and others are like, man, I really relate to that. Just as somebody might say, um, Wally's a bit much for me, man, but Ruth, that's just humming, and that really helps me. Great, we need all of it. We need all of it. So then... What we are trying to do, when I say pull the curtain, is we're trying to model the undivided self as a community. And not just what we're doing, but how we are doing it. Are you with me? So there you go. I was a little bit of pull the curtain and let you in on some more things. Um, this morning, we're going to look at what it looks like to do this with friends. And so I also want to mention how each of these people that I mentioned, and many more, have been incredible friends and encouragement to me. And in fact, John, which you find this even silly now for me to say John, because it's dad, is more how I know him. For over 25 years, he has held a role, one, at least one role of being a friend, a mentor, and a father-in-law, and so has spoken into that. And so this, this matters. These, these people bring encouragement and friendship in many, many ways, and it's needed, and it needs to be shared. So then, um, I'd love to pray, and then we will sink into our text, and off we will go. And I don't need to make a joke. I haven't taught in a month. We'll be done when we're done. <laughs> Gracious God, you are so, so, so good, and I am just beyond grateful, and I bless you, God, for the opportunity to gather together in community. God, I trust that you always are speaking, moving, leading, guiding, nudging, drawing us to you, and it's a gift to gather together to sing in a way that knits our hearts together, to pray to hold hands, to high-five, to hug, to open the scriptures and sink in in mysterious, mystical ways that you are dancing among us and within us and putting us together in ways that we so need. And I bless you for that. I bless you for this incredible community, these friends. And I pray that you will do what only you can do. You will move as you move, and we will not be the same because of who you are, how you are, and what you are doing in us and through us, even now. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, we're going to start with uh, what is often known as the early church, post-resurrection Jesus, group of people getting together and how they live in the power of the Christ spirit so as to live unified while also being good news to the world around them. So we're going to be in the book of Acts. Chapter 4 is where we'll go, and we'll be in a number of places. Yes? My hat? Oh, I should put it on for the scripture part. Thank you. Good. <laughs> See, I have you all to remind me. 
And I feel like the lights were getting a bit warm on my head anyways. Um, Now, Acts chapter 4, verse 32. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. A glimpse into profound community lived by way of unity and generosity. Verses 33 to 37. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them, in them all, that there were no needy persons among them. Circle that. From time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. So, of course, we're going to begin with context, context, context. When reading the first four chapters of the book of Acts, we find that Luke, as understood to be the writer, is a bit repetitive. If you read the first four chapters, you'll go, I've heard this before, like just a couple chapters ago that he is already mentioned in chapter 2 specifically that these first Christians living in Jerusalem sold homes and property and distributed to those who were in need. So Luke, why do you keep repeating yourself? Well, in the first century, by way of language and their literary ways, in the ancient areas, repetition was a way of saying, please pay attention What I'm talking about has a lot more depth sink in. It's a blinking sign is what he's saying is there's more going on here. So what, Luke, are you trying to get us to pay more attention to? This community that Luke writes about were not the first Jews of their day to try their hand at this interdependent communal living. The best, mo- best known at that time was a group who called themselves the quote-unquote covenant community. They formed themselves around a character simply known as the teacher of righteousness, who probably lived in the late second or early first century BCE, so before the time of Jesus. This teacher claimed, or his followers claimed on his behalf, that his work, uh, that God had established through him a new covenant spoken of by the prophets, especially Jeremiah and Ezekiel. This teacher was opposed by the priestly hierarchy based in the temple in Jerusalem. Hang on to that. That's really important. The Jerusalem priests said, we don't, we don't agree with this group. And if you're wondering, where is this? This is all documented in what is known as the Dead Sea Scrolls. Now, this group claimed they were the fulfillment of the prophets. They lived isolated from society in the desert area known as Qumran. So... We're going to sink into this group really quickly. They spent, this community out in the desert, spent all their time writing copies of and studying the scrolls, which included large chunks of what we often call the Old Testament or the Hebrew scriptures. 
and they wrote commentary on the scriptures. So first picture, um, this is modern day. This is uh, Qumran today. So this is where it is. You can see it's out in the desert. It's removed. And this next picture will show you this is, uh, and all of these, this is called a scriptorium. So in these long rooms, they would have long tables and they would, because it scrolls, write copies and copies and copies of the Hebrew scriptures and commentaries, commentaries on the scriptures. Next slide is a, a, a sketch of what that looked like then in the first century. As you can see, you can see how they lived in this really small community out isolated in the desert, just among themselves. But what's really fascinating is our next slide. This is called a mikvah. Go ahead and say mikvah. Stairs that go down, there would be water, and these were ritual baths or ritual um, tubs that they would wash themselves in for purity's sake. They lived in the desert as a small community, yet all throughout the community are a number of mikvah that they would constantly be washing themselves to be pure. They needed to be pure. And that wasn't pure from society because they removed themselves from society. It's they had this hyper, like, let's stay pure as this isolated group, and we will spend all of our time and lives just writing copies of the scriptures and memorizing the scriptures and commentary on the scriptures. Back to our Acts text. Luke is letting us know how these first Christians in Jerusalem were doing something similar to this Qumran group, yet there were some very significant differences. They too trusted God had established a new covenant, but not through the teacher of right, righteousness, rather through Jesus the Christ. They also saw themselves as the covenant community in whom God's promises were coming true. Where do we read about some of these promises? Well, one is in the book of Deuteronomy, which is found in the Torah, or what would be known as the Torah, and it speaks of what life will be like when God finally establishes his people. Deuteronomy 15 begins by announcing how every seven years there should be the cancellation of debts in community. And then in verse 4 it says this, However, see if this sounds familiar, there need be no poor people among you. Sound familiar? Why? For in the land the Lord your God is giving you to possess as your inheritance, he will richly bless you. What he's saying is there is plenty in what I'm giving you for everyone. So there ought not be anyone in need because you all will distribute that equally. Well, people will be taken care of. This is what it will look like. So Luke is making a rather bold and controversial claim that this, these people, this group, these followers in Jerusalem are the true covenant community because they trust that what Jesus has accomplished on the cross was the cancellation of the biggest, most universal debt, sin, for all people, for all time, has been canceled. Are you with me? So they're saying, whoa, 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 Jesus has taken care of this, so here's the please don't miss this point though. It is not this community a spoken mantra made from a place of isolation in which they are doing this. Luke has clearly written how these people are actually 
living in community and where they are doing this really, really matters. I will borrow from real estate and say, location, location, location. Where this community is living this out, practicing the generous and joy-filled ways of Jesus is in Jerusalem. This has layers of meaning. First, it is not in the desert, isolated from society, right? So that's one. Because they, what this Qumran group did is they isolated themselves from society, which made it really easy to just point at and judge everyone else. Look at you all. We out here in our mikvah are good, and we just write copies of things. This is, so this is stark contrast. They're in Jerusalem, in the hub, if you will. Secondly, there was, a, there was another group at that time who thought they were the chosen people of God. The religious leaders who operated the temple in Jerusalem. Here is where New Testament scholar and historian and our good friend, N.T. Wright, offers us much-needed insight and brilliance. He says this, the temple authorities thought they were guardians of the official traditions of Israel, but in the very same city, there was a community which was what? Practicing the life of the true covenant people of God and thereby quietly upstaging all that went on in the temple. What you do with money and possessions declares loudly what sort of community you are. And the statement made by the early church is what? Practice Practice was clear and definite. No wonder they were able to give such powerful testimony to the resurrection of Jesus. They were what? Demonstrating that it was a reality in ways that many Christians today who often balk at even giving a tithe of their income to the church can only dream of. <laughs> Come on, N.T. Wright. And if you have a British accent, you get away with that. How <laughs> oh, darn it. Um, now, for those of you squirming, ah, he did it. He mentioned money and tithes. This is about how the first Christians practiced and demonstrated their trust in the way of Jesus. It is not about shaming or guilting people today into giving money to a church fund. It is highlighting a community awakened to the truth that was articulated so well by the 20th century missionary martyr Christian martyr Jim Elliott, who said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Unity forged in joy and generosity. This group is practicing this in the heartbeat of Israel, Jerusalem, under the watchful eye of the temple guards and priests and elite. They, who simply talked about being the covenant community, 
all while bilking people of their resources by way of temple tax and corrupt practices that overstuffed the pockets of their tunics. Are you with me? This community that Luke is writing about actually practiced the art of generously serving and giving to meet the needs of the community, all from a place of joy. Ah, oh, it would be our pleasure and delight and joy to make sure that there are no needy people among us. It's a gift. Are you with me? So while the Qumran community isolated themselves in the desert, writing and memorizing the words, creeds, and doctrines about the divine, these followers of Jesus demonstrated what it looks like to be a generous community among society so that what they were doing in following Jesus, the world could witness what this looks like, including the religious leaders who then get really annoyed that they're doing what we talk about. What a novel concept. Now, oh, the whole thing. This is not simply, though, so we don't get lost. Oh, this vague group of people in the first century, we get lost in that because we are told of a fella given the name Joseph by his parents, who's from the island of Cyprus. Now, if we go to a map, we get Cyprus here. It's an island, so it's that far, like you can see where Jerusalem is, right? And we are told of a guy who is from this island of Cyprus. Who is this guy? Colossians 4.10, understood to be written by Paul, tells us this guy is the cousin of Mark, of Gospel of Mark fame. But Joseph is known to the followers of Jesus, and now church history, he's known as Barnabas. Why is he known as Barnabas? It's a name that was given to him because of how he lived as an encouragement. It means son of encouragement. Barnabas demonstrated a profound way of friendship. So, Barnabas was a friend who lived through Christ and drew the Christ out of others. He gets very little ink, but one could argue, and I will make the argument, that we might not have much of the ink that we call the New Testament if not for Barnabas demonstrating the way of Jesus. So we're going to look further into the small bit written about him, which actually opens up the massive impact made through him. Are you with me? We're going to read how Barnabas sought out a guy named Saul, who we now know as Paul, after he had an experiential encounter with Jesus the Christ. Before Saul had this encounter, he was climbing the religious ranks on his way to being the most notable and powerful religious kind of leader, rabbi, sage of his day. He was moving about Israel and Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, and he was actually persecuting and trying to imprison followers of Jesus. He's having them arrested, those who trusted in Jesus. 
And this included presiding over the death of the first Christian martyr, a guy named Stephen. This Saul said, go, do it. I think this is good. But then Saul had a life-changing experience with Jesus, which is not easy for some people to get on board with. So we read in Acts chapter 9, then verse 19, Saul spent several days with the disciples after this encounter with Jesus with the disciples in Damascus. At once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. He was just putting in people in prison who trusted that. For that, now he's preaching, no, 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 yes, yes, this is. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on this name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? What is going on? Do you imagine this scene? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Christ. After many days had gone by, there was a conspiracy among the Jews to kill him. But Saul learned of their plan. Day and night they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. But his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. <laughs> this is make a great movie. When he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing he really was a disciple. But Barnabas, those two words I find to be so powerful, loaded dynamite. But Barnabas, in fact, I'd like to call this teaching, but Barnabas. Why? Because let's keep going. These two words, but Barnabas, as this moment, it's a catalyst providing a path for this soul to move from being a religious terrorist to Barnabas' people. That's what he's been doing. To then he will become known as Paul, the church planter, an apostle who will go on to write much of what we know as the New Testament, right? So let's keep reading in the text. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and moved about what? Moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord because Barnabas offered an open hand of friendship. And encouragement. Saul would participate in and teach the church in Jerusalem as it begins to grow exponentially. Acts 11.19 Now those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed. Wait, what? The persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed, who oversaw that? Saul. So now things are spreading out early on within this. 
The divine took what was meant for ill as an opportunity for followers of Jesus to take the message farther and further. Now, let's keep going with this text. Now, those who had been scattered by the persecution, persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed traveled so far as Phoenicia, where else? Cyprus, who's from there? Barnabas. And Antioch, spreading the word only among Jews. Some of them, however, men from where? Cyprus and Cyrene went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, not other than Jew pe Jewish people, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people trusted and turned to the Lord. News of this reached the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent who? Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw what the grace of God had done, he was glad and he encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He, this Barnabas, was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. <laughs> we should know, contextually, that Antioch was a vibrant, cosmopolitan, global crossroads of trade and culture. It was a New York, Los Angeles type of place, humming with activity. It was a crossroads where all people from all over the world, from, if you're going from the west to the east, this is where you go through. If you're going east to west, you're going to find yourself in Antioch, this hub that is humming with all sorts of diversity and things happening. So to see the grace of God at work would take a very pliable, humble, and generous person, which is interesting because this is the description we are given of this guy called Barnabas. He stepped up and was a friend to Saul, someone who was initially persecuting and fighting against the church. But through the open hand of friendship, Saul was invited to participate in teaching and leading the church as it began to move from a single group of people to a global, diverse community of people. Are you with me? Such a big deal. This is a massive movement and the turning point begins with two powerful words, but Barnabas. Things were stuck. Things were here. They were as they are. But Barnabas said, friendship. Barnabas is described as a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and given the nickname born out of how he lived as an encourager. In a move that would be massively countercultural today, Barnabas did not seek to be the hero of the story. He instead, by being a friend and encourager, said, I will be a hero maker. 
I'm going to take and be a guide for this Saul that he might go and do as God has gifted him to go. And Barnabas, we find it just in the background, if you will. He's thrilled to be a guide. And then this Saul would go on to write much of what we know as the New Testament. And who was he writing to? Much, much of the writing are letters to churches he started in Rome, Greece, Asia Minor, all over Paul is starting these churches, which unfolded after Barnabas extended a hand of friendship. We have nothing, please don't miss this, we have nothing in the text that says Barnabas was smarter than other people, he was more educated, he was way more gifts and talents and all of that, nothing in the text that tells us he's more skilled or educated or gifted than others, we are simply told of how he was full of the Christ spirit and that he was encouraging, generous and open to connecting with those who are deemed the enemy. In fact, he's going to extend the hand of friendship to a person who was a terrorist to his people. Yet, Barnabas befriended him. It is an incredible story, example of grace which takes us to this community, Walker Harbor, today. As I mentioned, there are many in this community who have provided friendship and encouragement. What I want to do is just lean into one practice, one practice this morning for how we can be a people who open our hands to friendship to others. So what I would love for you to do is give a big old Walker Harbor welcome to our friend Rex Curtis, please. Now, here's the thing. Um, Rex and I have been friends for a long time, uh, and, and we've got quite a story, but here's the thing. Central to our friendship is... A, is like this mantra, if you will. What, it's a question, what is your story that sits at the, the center of our friendship throughout the years? What is your story? Story is a big deal. Story is really important. So I'm just going to begin, we'll have a little chat back and forth, but Rex, what does story mean to you? First of all, thank you for giving me the opportunity. I get emotional, so as I go through this, just hang in there with me, because this matters. Um, story is about several things, an open hand of friendship between one and another, one in 10, one in maybe 70, depending on the situation and where you get to share your story. But story is about two things. It's about me, us, going to the core of who we are. The core. Very difficult to get to. Um, it needs encouragement. It needs trust. It needs faith. It needs an intensity of H-A-T, honesty, authenticity, and transparency. I call it hat. Put on my hat. Oh. 
the reason why that's important is because if we want to understand who we are, where we come from, then we can become what we're called to become. The other part of it is their story. The story of the person on the other side of the coffee table. Sorry. Their story matters. Everyone has a strong desire to be known, to be heard. You'd be surprised how many times you can say, what is your story? Share your story with me. Do you ever hear anybody? I haven't say, I'm not going to tell you that. Still on. People want to be heard. And story leads to redemption, restoration, and reconciliation. And for me, that has happened. So that question, um, what is your story? Where does that, where did it click in for you then? Well, a little bit about my story because my story, unbeknownst to me, went really deep when I didn't expect it to. So I grew up in a very, uh, under my father who was a very strict disciplinarian. And I'll leave it at that. That led to unknowingly when I first found a beer to have a very strong desire to drink. Why? It gave me freedom. It took away pain. And it made me vibrant and courageous and all of the things that I wasn't able to be like in my home and in my life. But that led to 28, uh, or let me see, from, not, from 2000 up till 1995, it led to a DUI. And there are a lot of circumstances around that, but it took two moments of clarity for me that I now know was the Holy Spirit of coming to understand that I had a drinking problem. For many, that's a very difficult place to go to. And I feel for those who have that struggle. But after a couple of weeks of going to AA, the, I realized I hadn't had a drink. And I now know that God took that away from me. And it's been 28 years since I've had a drink. It's only God. It's all about him. So uh, I went to AA for about four or five years. We moved to Detroit from Cincinnati. I stopped going to AA. That led to a lack of spiritual connection for me. I was not a Christ follower, but I, was, I believed that God existed, and so he was my higher power. But what happened was, was that I went from small irritations to rage. You know, it was because I didn't know what to do with the conflict in my life, and I didn't know the core of where that anger was coming from. 
and then but Barnabas. But Barnabas. So uh, 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 the question of what's your story or the invitation by a Barnabas type to you to say, hey, would you tell your story or could I hear your story? That happened for you. It did. So I was taking Nathan to a uh, basketball camp and we walked in and I saw this six foot seven guy who had a glow about him. He just had this aura that I didn't recognize in myself. And after a couple of weeks of the basketball camp, he came up to me and said, Rex, would you be willing to come to my, to my small group? Now, I wasn't a Christ follower, but I'm a joiner. <laughs> I like people. So I said, sure, what can that, you know, what can that be like? So I went a couple of times and then he announced to the 15 men in this group that there was going to be a story weekend and any of us that wanted to sign up, he could only take nine, would come and tell their story. And I'm joining, I'm in. Now I don't know any of these guys. I, I'm like way out of my league from the standpoint of knowing who, what's going on. But I said yes and he looked at me and goes, really? <laughs> and I said yes. So the whole process is about writing your story and getting to the core. And I thought I had done that. Uh, they gave us two, three-page document on how to write your story. And what are the four or five things in your life that really defined who you are? And I did that. I thought I did that. We get to the story weekend. One guy goes. He's crying. I never cry. I'm looking at him like, you got to be kidding me. What am I in for? I'm second. I get through the first paragraph of about four pages. Sorry. This is all about joy. My entire life came out. All the pain, the shame, the abuse the loss of relationships, everything. 45 minutes of me bawling. And at the end, they looked at me and said, do you know what just happened? I, I, I was saying things that I didn't even remember happening. And they said, the Holy Spirit just got rid of all your baggage. I didn't know what that meant, but I believed it. And I came home. Kathy was worried because I'm going off with 15 guys to a <laughs> weekend, and you know, and here I am. Praise God that my my wife Kathy and all of my kids, Nathan especially being younger and experiencing more of this than any of them, stuck by me hung in there with me, but I got out of the car. She looked at me and said, something's different. And it was. The rage was gone. Gone. I had gotten, unbeknownst to me, I didn't ask for it. I didn't pray for it. I didn't believe it. But yet, 
Barnabas. He gave me the opening, and I created an opportunity for myself, right? I gave myself the opportunity to experience something that I had never experienced before in my life. Now, I'll share one real quick thing, because there's someone else in my life who has done that, and it's Nathan. Nathan opened himself up to prayer one day. And when he did that, a miracle happened for him. And his life changed forever. And it happened while we were gone with a stranger to him who offered to pray for him. And Nathan did what? Said yes. So that's my story. So, so that, that yes. right, right, right. But that yes, that yes opens things up. Yes, yes, you can pray for me. Tell me your story. Okay, that opening, that cracks open the opportunity, the invitation, that yes is, is the Holy Spirit then says, let me throw a dance party. We'll, we'll begin swirling, working, moving, um, because Nathan then has a story because, can I pray for you? Sure. And he can tell you more of that story. Where Saint, similarly, his life comes undone so that it can be redone and re-knit together in some really, really beautiful ways. So you had a gentleman who said, what's your story? And then that led to eventually you, to fast forward your story, you get involved with the church, you actually go on staff with the church and become a campus pastor for that church. Then you and Kathy uh, and the family moved to West Michigan, you were in the Detroit area, woohoo, um, but then came over to West Michigan, bigger woohoo, um, over here, and we had a mutual friend who knew and said, well, hey, you ought to connect with with Wally, we grabbed breakfast together. Don't know you guys at all, but literally was just, hey, grab breakfast because we know this guy. And at um, breakfast, I didn't know, didn't know you, but we sit down to breakfast and I say, um, so tell me your story. What's your story? And have you two share. And then it's like, I, I was just there to kind of help. Well, can I help you find a community to be a part of? And I was pastoring a church in Muskegon and I said, um, don't come here. <laughs> I actually told you about a bunch of other churches that I thought, well, these would be good fits for you. And then you two both said, well, <laughs> you thought I was weird. Shocker. Um, but then, um, then they were like, well, but you're a pastor. Shouldn't we start with your church? And I go, you can. And then that led to more and more and more. Then you got up in front of people at that, that church and just said to them, what's your story? What's your story? You rallied people around story. Then you came here as we launch into this thing, Walker Harbor, and we say, Rex, why don't you invite people to tell their story? And so you do, what's your story? What's your story? Again, just a simple question, what's your story? And it disrupted this community, disrupted this community, and invited people to do that. And I would say it began to change. God, Spirit, began to change people as they began to tell their story. Some people even said, I don't have a story. And come to find out, they do. It's just the invitation. What's your 
story changes. It can change. It was the open hand of friendship. Because if you ask somebody their story and they tell it, uh, get ready. Get ready to dance with the divine. Because when you see that unfold, you will not be able to be the same. You will not. And they won't, they won't either. You learn someone's story. Uh, Rex, thank you for your friendship, you. your encouragement, and to be a Barnabas. Here's the thing. I, I love this guy. He's got all kinds of talents and gifts and stuff like that. But know this, in, in watching him do this, it isn't this charismatic, just over the top, boy, he just has gifts upon gifts. He begins with what's your story, and one thing that he has learned really well and does so well is listen. It's actually not talking, but listening as people tell their story. And as you've then said before, not trying to correct people's story, just hearing it and letting it be what it is. And he doesn't correct their story. That's your story. Thank you for sharing. And then it just keeps snowballing. So what that does is that takes us into, because this is a picture. This is a picture. I'm going to invite Rick, Rex to help this. This picture of an open hand of friendship is then another picture, another practice would be the Eucharist, the communion, Lord's Supper as it is. What is that? It's a picture of Jesus' body Jesus' blood broken open and poured out for others, right? And then when we say, ready? Yes. When we receive, when we take, when we are open to that, then what that does is we go, I just want to go out and break myself open, pour myself out, that others might taste and see and hear that God is oh so good. When you say yes, when you open yourself up for that, here is something that I very much learned. Once you taste, you can't untaste. Once you see, you can't unsee. Once you hear, you can't unhear. You have to do something with that now, just as we do. So what we want to do is encourage that simple thing. You, you think about it. This, the stories that come out of the question, what's your story, will blow you away. Will blow you away. Will blow you away. So what I want to do is I want to invite us as a community to come to the table, come to the Eucharist. And it's um, a practice of just recognizing Jesus gave himself fully. Honesty, transparency, authenticity. Here I am, here. I give myself for you and to you. And when we say yes, and then say, and I will follow you, Jesus, in that. Break myself open, pour myself out, that others would taste and see. So we're going to invite you to come. You'll hear uh, Rex and I are going to be over here. Dave and Sue will be over here. Uh, and they will just say, you come and say, this, this bread, it's a picture, it's a symbol of Jesus' body given for you. This, this uh, juice is a picture, a symbol of Jesus' blood poured out for you. We take, we bless God. Yes, thank you. Open ourselves up to what then can happen through you. 
So we're going to take some time. We're going to serve the band as they come up first. And then, um, uh, then you all may come up as you feel led. Uh, all are welcome uh, to come, to participate. All are welcome. Um, they're they're uh, gluten-free over here, practically. Uh, we like to be practical as well, if, if you need that um, as well. So, uh, gracious God, we bless you for this time, this space, these people, this story that you are writing among us and in us and through us. I bless you, God. May even now there be people who will take the risk of saying yes, of saying yes, of opening themselves up to you that we would have a front row seat watching you do what you do and that we would all be different on the other side. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.